The following is a message from Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 14. you to follow along if you have a Bible in hand. And we're going to read the whole chapter, Exodus 14. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and the waters were divided, and he made the sea dry land. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I invite you to pray with me. Father, how we need to hear from your word today if we are to live faithfully in this world that is opposed to you. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your resurrection power. So we pray that you would open up your word to us, open up our eyes, that we would see your glory in it. Instruct us and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm happy to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity on Ken's invitation to share with you from the word of the Lord. And I want to bring along greetings from Valley Bible Church in White River Junction. Glad to cross the border here and see what the Lord's doing in Durkeytown. And I do understand from Ken and Mike that you're spending some weeks focusing on the resurrection. You can't get much more central to the Christian faith than that than the death of our Lord Jesus and his resurrection. These things are at the very center of the gospel that we believe and proclaim. So you might be wondering, if we're in a series on the resurrection, why are we looking at Exodus 14 this morning? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that we are looking at Exodus 14 because I believe that the Lord can instruct us about resurrection from this passage. You may be aware that much of what we read about resurrection is from the New Testament. It is, after all, where we have the account of Jesus going to the cross for our sins, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But you know, the more I read the New Testament, the more that I have become convinced that I also need to understand the Old Testament. It is, after all, the Bible that the New Testament writers had when they wrote the New Testament. And when we read the New Testament carefully, we see that it very often refers back to the Old, whether it's quoting from the Old Testament, alluding to it, or showing how it is fulfilled in Jesus. Because of this, if we're going to properly interpret the New Testament, we have to have a background in the Old. Or to put it another way, our understanding of the New Testament is going to be severely impoverished 
if we neglect and fail to invest in studying the Old Testament as well. So what I want to do today is to bring you to one of the high points of the Old Testament, one of the defining events, the crossing of the Red Sea, to see what it has to teach us about resurrection. Now, I imagine that many of you are familiar with the account of the Exodus. And going back to Genesis, we find that God has made a covenant with Abraham and told him that he's going to make of him a great nation. He promised Abraham that he would give him land and offspring, and through that offspring, he was going to bless the nations. But God also told Abraham that his descendants were going to serve another nation in another land, being afflicted for 400 years. And then the Lord was going to bring judgment upon that nation and would bring out Abraham's descendants with great possessions. And so it happened. By way of Joseph, during a time of famine, Israel came to dwell in the land of Egypt, later being harshly treated as slaves there. And eventually the Lord raised up this man, Moses, and through him he sent a series of judgments upon Egypt, culminating in this last plague, the death of the firstborn. And there he graciously passed over the Israelites while he judged the Egyptians. And Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites go. So the Lord led his people out of Egypt. But where he led them to initially was to the Red Sea. And that's where we pick up here in Exodus 14. And in verse 2, he shares his plan with Moses. He says, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-herath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord wants to have Pharaoh come after Egypt. He wants Pharaoh to see that these freed slaves are now pinned into a corner up against the sea. Because once again, he says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh pursues after Israel. Why? They were just released. Well, it's so that the Lord can overturn the situation into a massive defeat for Egypt. He's going to show his power and his glory over and against the Egyptians. He says it here. He says it again in verses 17 and 18. I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host. So it is not merely in rescuing the Israelites that the Lord is going to put his glory on display. It is also in this spectacular, decisive victory over the Egyptians, the most powerful nation around. God wants to act for the sake of his chief concern, for his own glory. He wants to put it on display for Israel, for the Egyptians, for the nations around. And then beginning in verse 5, we see this plan take effect. We see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart play out. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. 
They said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. You know, the wisest thing that the Egyptians did was to let the Israelites go, but now they regret their decision and they want to bring them back. So verse 8 tells us the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh pursues after the people of Israel. He sends his elite fighters, the army of Egypt with their chariots and their horsemen. You need to picture this. It's a, a ragtag group of, of migrants. They're pressed up against the sea. What does Pharaoh do? He sends the ancient equivalent of tanks and fighter jets in after them. From a military perspective, the Israelites don't stand a chance. Of themselves, they're entirely unprepared. They have no real defense. They have no escape route. And much like we do, I think, when Israel recognizes what's happening, they respond with fear and accusation. Verse 10 says, they feared greatly. They saw the situation and they're afraid. They do at least think to cry out to the Lord, but at the bottom, they're, they're afraid. So they begin accusing Moses. In verse 11, is it, be, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know, if their fear was properly placed, if they feared the Lord instead of Egypt, this threat would have been put in proper perspective. But it's not. Their fear is wrongly placed. And so what they do is they resort to irrational talk. They begin to look upon their former slavery with rose-colored glasses. Oh, how great it was in Egypt. Much better than this wilderness. That's in great contrast to what, the way that Moses responds to the threat. He responds by faith in God. He takes the Lord at his word. He's confident that God will save the Israelites and destroy their enemies. Look at the way that Moses speaks to the people in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's a response of faith in God. The people don't need to even fight. They can just stand there quietly and watch the Lord work his salvation. And so we come to the actual event, which results in two things. It results in the deliverance of the Israelites and the destruction of the Egyptians. So in verse 15, the Lord gives his instructions to Moses. He is to take his staff in hand, stretch it out over the sea and divide it, allowing the people of Israel to go through on dry ground. So the angel of the Lord, the pillar of cloud, moved behind the Israelites to put a barrier of protection between them and the Egyptians. 
And then in verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord acts. This is the one who at the beginning of creation separated the waters from the dry land. This time, he's splitting the waters, exposing the dry land beneath. The waters become to the people, it says, a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Only the Creator can do these things. This is the very hand of God at work. And as the Lord intended, the Egyptians went right in after them. They went into the midst of the sea with their horses, their chariots, their horsemen. The Lord looked down upon them and he, he threw this powerful army into a panic, clogging or binding their wheels. And the Egyptians recognized that the Lord was fighting against them. So they reversed course. They went from pursuing after Israel to now fleeing from Israel, not because Israel was a threat, but because the mighty army of Egypt stood no chance against the Lord. But their decision to flee was too late. The Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea again and close that chaotic trap of destruction, the sea. And he does. I imagine that Pharaoh stood on the shore watching all of this unfold with shock and dismay as his great, mighty army is now being helplessly swept away by the waters. Verse 27 says that the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. He shook them off to their doom into a watery grave. The result was that every Egyptian that had pursued after Israel was gone. Not one of them remained. In contrast, verse 29 tells us the experience of the Israelites. It says, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They safely passed through the very same waters that destroyed their enemies, and they came out alive. And the final two verses of the passage describe the results of this. Look at verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Mission accomplished, right? Israel was brought through safely on dry ground, and as they looked back behind them, if I don't knock this down, they saw the corpses of the Egyptians washing on the shore. What a sight to see. What a mighty God had saved them. All who were there saw his great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians and for the benefit and deliverance of the Israelites. No longer do they fear the Egyptians. Their fear has vanished. The Egyptians are dead. What was a seemingly invincible army is destroyed. Now Israel's fear is properly placed. They feared the Lord. They believed in him and in his appointed servant Moses. And that day the Lord did just as he had promised. The same hand that brought watery destruction upon their enemies, the Egyptian army, opened a path through the waters for Israel to be delivered. The Lord indeed got glory over Egypt. They came to know that he is the Lord and there is none other. 
And now Israel responded rightly after experiencing God's mighty act of salvation. They believed with reverence. So that's the crossing of the Red Sea, but we also need to make our connection forward here. And it comes back to that, the verses we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're following along, you can turn over there if you'd like. I'm going to read just the first two verses. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We'll stop there. Do you see how Paul describes this ordeal of Israel going through the sea? He describes it as a baptism. Well, that's pretty curious. A baptism. And what is the connection between passing through the waters of the Red Sea and baptism? Well, think about it for a moment. What did those waters prove to be for the Egyptians? They were waters of destruction, waters of judgment. They brought death. But Israel's passing through the very same waters was salvation. They went through the waters of death and came out on the other side alive. Crossing the Red Sea was their deliverance. It resulted for them in life. That sounds a lot like what Christian baptism portrays. This is a Baptist church, so I hope that some of you are well-versed in these things. In baptism, you go down into the water. You descend, symbolically, into the waters of judgment and death. But you are brought back up alive. It's death and resurrection. The act of baptism symbolizes and dramatizes your union by faith in Christ in his death and resurrection. You might recall that when Jesus was asked by his disciples James and John in Mark 10 about sitting at his right hand and his left hand in his glory, Jesus said to them in verse 38, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He mentions his baptism there. What is he talking about? He's referring to his suffering and death. And the New Testament teaches us that those who trust in Christ for salvation have participated in Jesus' death when he went to the cross and have participated in his resurrection when he came up out of the grave. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what am I trying to say here? Well, to connect the dots, what I'm saying is that Israel, passing through the waters of the Red Sea, those waters of death and destruction, were pointing ahead to a reality that's portrayed in baptism, that believers in Jesus are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. There's a, a correspondence between Exodus and the events of the New Testament. 
The crossing of the Red Sea was a resurrection drama on a national scale. And why is that important? How does this contribute to our understanding of resurrection? I think the Red Sea highlights for us the corporate nature of resurrection. It's not an individual thing. This is a, an entire group of recently freed slaves who enter the Red Sea on one side. When they came out on the other side, they were a nation. They were God's people. The Red Sea was, as it were, God creating a new people for himself as they were brought out of a watery grave alive. In this fallen world, God recreates a people for himself by means of resurrection. And this concept that we see pictured so vividly in Exodus comes forward to the church. You know, regardless of who is on your membership roles, the Bible defines the church in the same way. The church is the assembly of God's people, those who have been raised from spiritual death to new life in Christ. It is those who have been born again, who now come together as God's chosen people, rejoicing in faith in the one who saved us. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he goes on and says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, God did put his glory on display when he saved Israel by bringing them through the Red Sea. It was a glorious act of redemption, but it was not the final act. It was a preview of God's greatest display of his glory in Christ Jesus by the redemption of his people again through judgment. In Jesus' case, he was the one who suffered judgment. He was covered over by the waters of death. It was a judgment that you and I deserved for our sin. And his death and his resurrection opened the way for us to pass through safely on the other side. So then where is it that you find the people of God today? Well, you find them as those who are on the other side of the sea, as it were. Those who by faith have been buried with Christ in death and have been raised to walk in newness of life. You know, ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned and rebelled against God and sin, we enter this world into a state of rebellion against him, spiritually dead. That's our default condition as humans. But what is held out to us and to all the world in Christ is the path of resurrection through the waters of judgment, it is the way of salvation through Jesus. And the response it calls for is faith. Believing his good news in the gospel, trusting him, relying upon him, receiving the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And when God opens your eyes to see the glorious act of salvation that he has accomplished through Christ, crucified and risen, 
Well, the response that identifies you as one of God's people is not to fear death, to fear God's enemies. It is to fear the Lord, to fear God himself, to worship him, to reverently believe in God and in his only son, Jesus. It's a belief that bears the fruit of obedience in following him. It is to see Jesus as your Lord, to turn your back on your old ways of being enslaved to sinful rebellion and to by faith walk in the newness of life. This isn't something you do by yourself. We are resurrected into the people of God, this new reality of the church, the community of believers. That's why you gather. That's why you're here today. And even that is not the end of the story for God's people. When you were born again, you were raised spiritually from the dead. But Jesus was also raised bodily from the dead. And the good news is that a bodily resurrection awaits us too. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after de destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, not just Egyptians. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So friends, in Christ, God will have the last word. There is a final death coming for his enemies. And there's a final resurrection coming for all his people. In fact, there will be a renewal of all creation, a new heavens and a new earth. The question for each of us is, which side of the sea are we on? Are we marching toward those waters of destruction? Or have you passed from death to life? Are you on the other side? Do you have new life in Christ as one of his resurrected people? And if you have his resurrection life, are you walking in it? That is our task from now until he returns. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious salvation you have accomplished for us in Jesus. Thank you that he went to the cross, that he died, that he lay in the ground. We thank you that you didn't leave him there, that death could not hold him. You raised him from the dead in power and glory so that we too who have faith in Jesus are raised to new life. Pray that that would be the case for everyone here and that you'll teach us to walk in the newness of life. Would you fill this people with your resurrection power that they might glorify you in all that they do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.